morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to James chapter 4. What Jared read, that's my mistake. Uh, we do a preaching calendar for the year. I sent out the preaching calendar, and on that preaching calendar, I forgot to sandwich last week into two weeks on our calendar. So what Jared looked at was uh, what I gave him. That's what he read. But we're in James chapter 4, uh, verses 7 through 10. You can remain seated. I want to read that over to us uh, first and foremost so that we're not confused like, where, where's he getting all that information from? Because that's nowhere in the text that Jared read to us. That would be a true statement. So I want to read God's word to you, and then we will jump into God's word together. This is what James uh, says to us in James chapter 4, verse 7 through 10. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your, laughing, let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. May God's holy word um, bring sanctification and salvation to all of us. We pray this in God's name. Amen. Here we are. We're in the middle of James. James is a letter that he wrote to the Jewish people that had kind of been scattered all over the world. And he's reminding them of where they had come from and how Christ had saved them. And now he's also now chastising them as they began to wander away from the faith that God had implanted into him. So this is a letter of encouragement to kind of bring them back to the faith that God had implanted on them and call them to this place of works. That's what we're calling this series, Faith and Works. How do we work out our salvation? Not that we work for salvation, not that we have to work towards salvation. No, salvation is a free gift from God, and that ought to change us. And in changing us, our works, what we do, ought to look different. And that's what James has been saying to us in chapters 1 and 2. It's a kind of a 30,000-foot view of that. The last few chapters is on the ground. How do we really put these things, our faith, into actions? And what James has been telling us is primarily it's our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, and our relationship within the church. If we are to have healthy works, it ought to display itself in the body of Christ. We know that through what Jesus said in in John chapter 13, 35, he says, the world will, you, will know you're my disciples or that you belong to me or that you have a faith in me by the way that you love one another. So we've been looking at that throughout the last few weeks. And now we hear, here we are in this weird section of James chapter 4 because it looks like he kind of veers off course. He's been talking about relationships in the church. How do we do relationships? Last week we looked at, here's what happens when we're not having our faith plus works. It causes conflict. Conflict with God, conflict with self, conflict with other people. And he's going to get back to that next week when he goes back to you speak evil against one another. But here in the middle of the text about this warning of worldliness, how we as Christians interact with one another often looks like how the world interacts with one another. So how is it that James, now sandwiched in the middle, is going to say what he says? I want to say this this morning. There's ten commandments in these few verses. And these ten commandments are how we are to have our faith in Christ and how that is to work itself out in us. 
So these Ten Commandments are going to be broken down into four sections. The first section is our need for God. The second section is our need for forgiveness from God. Our ne the next section is our, our need for emotions with God. And lastly, our need for holiness from God. So let's look at this morning our need for God. Because what James is going to say here, this is about salvation. And here's what I'll say. If you do not know Christ Jesus, you will always be in conflict with God. You'll be in conflict with self. And you'll be in conflict with other people. So if you do not have a saving knowledge of this faith that's been given to you by God, then you will always have conflict to some level. And so James is reminding the writers and the readers of this. Hey, do you have a relationship with God? So that's the first question I want to ask us this morning as you sit here. Do you have an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior? If not, I promise this, you will always be in conflict. And now James is going to say, hey, this is what it looks like for us to have salvation. And so I want to offer this to you. It has to start first of our need for God. One writer says it this way, and I want you to think just for a moment about when I ask this question, what do you think about God? What do you think about God? When you hear the name God and the person of God, what comes to your mind? One writer, he says it this way in his book, it's called The Knowledge of the Holy. The Knowledge of the Holy is an amazing small book, but in The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer writes over 20 attributes of God. And, and that's not even a, a, a drop in the bucket compared to all the attributes of God. But here's what his very first line of the book. He says, whatever comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So I'll ask the question again now that I've read that statement. What, is the, what was the first thing that came to your mind about God? Because then the rest of this text will answer how you're going to view God. I think in the church, in particular, our view of God is tiny. We have a very distorted view of who God is. Like all God is, is either he's just the savior of the world or he's the genie in the bottle. Like I just need to go to God in prayer and then God will give me what I need. Like God is way more than that. Because the next thing is this, do you know you have a need for God? Which means when you think about God, it ought to be a mirror to how you see yourself. But if your first thoughts of God are small, then what are you going to do? You're going to look at yourself as grandiose. That's what we talked about last week. That's what pride says. Remember, pride says, I am like God. And so James is saying to us in this text, not explicitly, but how do you think about yourself in comparison to God? Because he's going to say, you have a great need for God. But my challenge to you is, do you see who you are in light of who God is? And do you see who God is in light of who you are? One writer says it this way. You have to have a proper knowledge of both. A knowledge of self and a knowledge of God. And they have to be equal. They have to 
hold hands. He says this, our wisdom, insofar as we ought to be deemed true and solid, wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. But these are connected together with many ties. It is not easily determined to which proceeds and gives birth to the other. So I'd say this this morning, how do you see yourself and how do you see God? Because if you see yourselves as equal, or if you see yourself better than God, you will have no need for God. And then you will never come to what James says to us. Our greatest need is a relationship with God. Do you believe that? Your greatest need is a relationship with a holy, perfect God who's sovereign over all things, not some things. Do you believe that? Because if you believe in a sovereign God that's in control of all things, then you're going to need that God for all things, not some things. James says it this way. He says, here's how you know you have a need for God. He says, first, you have to believe that need. He says, but you won't believe that you need God. You won't do the first thing in your salvation if you don't understand who you are in comparison to who God. He says this, therefore, submit yourselves to who God. Now, why would I ever submit to somebody if I don't believe I need them? The word submit or submission in that text means this, to rank under. To rank under. Now again, I've never served in the military. But if you come out of boot camp and you try to tell the colonel what to do, it doesn't go too well for you, does it? I, I Again, but, but that's the idea. We think we come to know Christ, we have this relationship with Christ, or we don't have a relationship with Christ, and we're equal to him, or if we're equal to him, we'll never submit to him. Which means I'm never going to submit to God's word. Like, if I don't believe that God is holy and his word is holy and his word is accurate, then why would I submit to it? I'm going to do my thing. I'll have sex before marriage. Why? Because you don't believe in the holiness of God and in God's holiness, what he gave to us in his word. You'll never submit to this. Submission is the key to all of our salvation. That's the primary place we must begin. Do you and have you submitted your will and your life over to Christ the Savior and the Lordship of Christ? If he's just your Savior and you're not your Lord, you'll continue to do whatever you want to do and think you got this free get-out-of-hell-jail card from Monopoly. But that's not what God's Word ever says. God's Word says I have to be saved through salvation with him and then I have to submit to his Lordship. So I'd ask you first and foremost, have you simply prayed a prayer and have not submitted your life to Christ? Because if all you've done is walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, turned around and continued to live the way you've always lived, you do not have salvation. Because there's no submission. Submission to who? A God bigger than you. A God that knows how you are designed, that knows how you operate and has given you his word so that you would live life and life to the full. You can only live life to the full through submission to Christ. Amen? So have you first submitted your life to Christ?
Because here's the next thing. If you submit to Christ, you see him as the Lord and Savior of your life, then the next thing's going to come pretty natural and easy. You will resist the evil one. That's what he says next. So command one is that we submit ourselves to God. Command two, you would resist the evil one. And the promise of resisting the evil one is what? He will flee from you. Well, how is it that we can resist the evil one? Because we have an understanding of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for each of us. The finished work of the cross says this, that there's not this cosmic war happening in the cosmos right now between God and Satan. That is over and done because of the finished work of the cross. The power of Satan is gone. It's done because of the cross. So therefore, if I submit my will and my life over to Christ, then I have an understanding that this battle that's going on has already been won. Therefore, I can resist them because I already know the outcome. This isn't a gamble. This is a sure thing. The surety that Christ has done a work in me and through me and on the cross gives me the power to resist the evil one. And when I resist the evil one, the promise from God's word is that he flees from us. Why does he flee from us? Because we're demonstrating to him we already know the truth about us and him. So if I submit to God, I can resist the evil one. He flees from me. Are you resisting Satan and his ploys for you? If not, I would say this. You are probably ignorant or arrogant to who Christ really is. Because he's already defeated the evil one. Satan has no power. Now, Satan has a lot of presence, but Satan has no power over you because you are in Christ and Christ is in you. The power that raised Christ from the dead, if you are a believer, lives and dwells in you. Do you, do I, do we, the church, believe that? The second thing would be this, or the third thing, the third command is this. Therefore, he says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You see, that drawing near to God reveals what to us about God. I'm needy for God. Why would I ever draw near to God if I don't think I need him? I, I don't get up in the morning. I don't read God's word on a daily basis because I'm supposed to. There's no shoulds about my quiet time. There's no shoulds about my prayer life. I don't live with this condemnation over me that drives me to God's word. What I live with is my neediness that pushes me to God's word. I wake up every morning knowing I need God. Because if I don't need God, then my life will literally go to hell in a handbasket. Because my best thinking is the worst thinking. Anyone else agree? No? Like, Again, I spent 90 days in a rehab center for my best thinking. My best thinking got me to treatment. And now I'm like, man, I don't ever want to go back to that way of life. Therefore, I need God not to go there. But my neediness is being revealed to me because I understand who God is. When I understand who God is, I look in the mirror and think, man, apart from him, I can do nothing. Therefore, I need him to do everything. And so the first thing for us this morning in the text is this. 
Do you know your great need for God? Therefore, you will submit to him. Therefore, you'll understand that you can resist the evil one. And therefore, you will pursue him. You will draw near to him. It's what the psalmist says. Is this true for you? Is it true for me? Is it true for this body? Psalm 73, 28 says this. But for me, it is good to be near God. It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, and I may tell of all of your works. Is it good for you to be near God? This is what David said to his son Solomon near the end of David's life. And he said this to the wisest men to ever live. The transition was David was the king and he's handing his kingdom over to young Solomon. He says this and he says to Solomon, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with your whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan, plan. If you what? Seek him. He will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever are we seeking god are we drawing near to god remember the young man in luke 15 the the young man went to his father and said to his father i want all of my inheritance and and the father gave the young man all of his inheritance and he went and squandered all that he had in this foreign land way away from god and it says this in the text and then in the moment he came to his senses and in coming to his senses, he, he thought to himself, I need my father. Like, I am living with pigs and a pig trough. I need my dad. And he turned and he walked away from the pig trough and he began to run back to God, his father. Remember what the text says about the father. The father was always looking for him. When he drew near to God, God was always there. Hear me when I say this. God didn't go anywhere. You have run from God. You must run back to God and God will meet you exactly where you are running to him. Are you running from God or to God? Are you drawing near from God? Are you running away from God? I said it last week. I'll say it this week. There is no neutral in your relationship with God. It's backwards or forwards. Are you drawing near to God this morning? And now he says this. These are in no, though they're in order of the text, these are not in any order for our salvation. He says this, there is a great need for forgiveness from God. That's what he says next in verse 8b. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinner, and purify your hearts, you double-minded man. Two things. They're the same thing. The first is this. He says, cleanse your hands. That means a place of confession. That's what the text means. He doesn't mean go wash your hands because you're getting ready to eat. He means you and I must come to this place of I've got dirty hands full of sin that need to be cleaned. The only way to clean that is through confession. Are you and am I and is this church doing an active obedience of confession on a daily basis? You see, because if you draw near to God... God's word, God's presence, God's character will always reveal to you and to me 
where I fall short of the holiness of God. And when I see that and I realize where I've fallen short of the holiness of God, then I must get on my hands and my face before God and repent and ask him to do for me what I can't do for myself. Cleanse me of all unrighteousness. Are we in active obedience through cleansing ourselves of our wicked ways? You see, it goes back to this. Do you know God is perfect and holy? And you are not? There's not going to be a day that goes by that you and I will not sin against the holy God. I don't care how big or small it is. There was only one man to walk this planet that was perfect. He isn't, in, he isn't in the flesh in this building. He is in this building. His name is Christ Jesus. And when I come face to face with that God, God's holiness will reveal that to me. It's what happened with the prophet Isaiah. You remember the prophet Isaiah? The prophet Isaiah was a godly man, more godly than all of us combined. He walked with the Lord in some intimate ways. And it says this in the text, in Isaiah chapter 6, it says, the holiness of God, God brought Isaiah to the throne room of God, and when Isaiah walked into the throne room of God, he looked at God and fell on his face. And then he said this, he says, woe is me, I'm an unclean man with unclean lips, and I live amongst unclean people. And he makes that confession, and making that confession, you know what happens, the Lord sends an angel from the throne with, with, with tongs and puts it on his mouth and cleanses him. But how come? Because he came into the recognition of the holiness of God and who he was. And who he was compared to who God was drove him to confession. Is that true for you? And is it true for me? He says not only this, but purify your hearts, you double-minded man. What is he talking about in that text? Well, if you're double-minded, then you're impure. If I take salt water and add fresh water to it, it's no longer fresh water. It's salt water. I am, it's a double-minded thing. And so what, what, what James is saying here, you can't. He says it previous in the text. You, there's no way that fresh water comes from salt water. And so he's saying to us, if you're double-minded, then you don't have purity. So how are we to get purity? How are we to get a pure heart? It's through pouring our lives through the grid work of who God is and who Jesus is. And when I pour my life into that grid work, he becomes the filter and filters out all the impurities. I cannot do that on my own. You can't do that on your own. Christ must be the filter to your life as you purify yourself in him, you must pour out yourself, so to speak, to Christ so that he can re remove all the impurities of your life. You and I, this church, cannot do that. It is only found in the work of Christ. So do you see your need for forgiveness this morning? You see, it's through forgiveness that we're made pure. It's through forgiveness that we wash our hands. And now the next one, as we come to the third place in the text, we have a need for emotions. Now, most of us don't like emotions. Am I right? Well, I know I'm right. I don't know why I'm asking that question. I work with people all day, every day, that they don't want to feel their feelings. 
and they don't feel their feelings, and because they don't feel their feelings, they get into a world of trouble. And what James is saying is, you have a need for emotion. We are emotional people. The world says, don't be emotional, but God's word says, you must be emotional. Well, how come? He says it so clear in the text. This is how we are to have emotions. It's what David says right after he sins with Bathsheba. Remember the story. He, he goes and he has this relationship with a woman that's not his. And he kills the husband and then they live together. And then they have this kid and Nathan shows up and is like, hey, you're the man that did all that thing. And then David comes to this place and has, evokes all this emotion in him. And out of that emotion, he says this. The sacrifice of God, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And God will not be despised those two places. A broken and contrite heart is a heart full of emotions. And so he says to us, do you, do I, in our salvation, do we have a lot of emotions? He says this, there's got to be three emotions that must be displayed in our salvation. The first one is this, we are to be wretched. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. So what does he mean by that? You could look at those three words and think those three words sound the same. The first one is to be wretched. He says to us, when we come face to face with God, we ought to be miserable. Anyone ever sinned and like you feel it in your stomach? Am I the only one? Like, you remember, you know that feeling of like, man, I've sinned and it's like in me and it can't get out of me and I feel miserable. The only way that it gets, you get away with it is to go to sleep or take a ton of drugs. That's what James is saying. He's saying, when you come and you sin against God, there ought to be this misery in your soul. No matter how big or how small that sin is. This morning, as you sit here, and you walk with Christ, or you're not walking with Christ, do you feel miserable? That's a good feeling. That's called conviction. Thank God for your misery. People that don't have that feeling, they're called sociopaths. So as much as you want to run from the misery, thank God the next time you feel miserable, because of your sin. Because here's the deal. The longer and longer and longer you go sinning without confession, you will become cold-hearted to the misery. The next time you feel miserable, fall to your knees to, and praise God for the Holy Spirit that's working in your life. I want Tennyson and Cedar when they become teenagers. I, I hope they do some of the dumbest things on the planet. And I hope they feel really miserable about it too. Because when they feel miserable about it, they can't hide it. But here's what I know. If they don't confess it, they'll become hardened to it and they won't feel the misery. And then they'll have to do what God's word says. God will always chastise those he loves. I don't want God's chastisement on my children. I want God's misery in my children that leads them to confession. I want that for my own life. I know what it means to have the 
strong hand of the Lord to discipline my life. And it was horrible. Because over time, I just stopped feeling so miserable. And my sin got worse and worse and deeper and deeper and deeper. Do you feel miserable this morning? The second thing he says, after you feel miserable, then you must mourn. There must be this deep grief, this deep sorrow in you and me. That's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. He said, blessed are those who mourn. What are we mourning over? We're mourning over our sin. Not only ought we ought to be miserable about it, but we ought to mourn over it. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. He says, for godly grief produces repentance. Or godly sorrow. Or godly grief, godly mourning, if you will, produces this repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief, worldly sorrow, or worldly mourning produces death. I would say, do you feel miserable? And are you mourning over your sin? And the last one, he says this. When you feel miserable and you begin to mourn, the outcome will be weeping. Do you weep over your sin? Remember what happened to Peter. Remember that Peter... On the night that he, his Savior, was betrayed, he said to him, hey, I'll never do that. And Jesus said to him, hey, you're going to deny me three times. And then Jesus was taken off and was beaten, and Peter kind of followed him in the distance and watched all of it go down. And then three different occasions, someone came and said, hey, you're with that guy. And he said, I'm not with the guy. You know that guy. I don't know that guy. That guy's your Savior. That's not my Savior. And then what happened After the third time, the rooster crowed, and what did Peter do? He wept because he felt miserable. He began to mourn, and in mourning, he could not hold it in any longer. It's what happens to Ezra in Ezra chapter 10. Ezra chapter 10, this mighty prophet of God was sent to God's people to convict them of their sins. He's, he's all, all through that book is as, as, as Ezra proclaiming the holiness of God to a wicked people. And he, he begins to read God's word to God's people. And it says this in, in Ezra chapter 10, verse 1. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the, the house of God, the great assembly or the church, the men, the women, all gathered to him out of Israel and the people wept bitterly. When's the last time this church wept bitterly over our sin? The church in America ought to weep bitterly over our sin and what we've done to people in the name of God. I hope we would feel miserable about it. I hope we would we'd have this place of mourning about it 
And then I hope the waterworks from our eyes and our heart don't cease for a long, long time. Do you have emotions about your salvation? It's what Rob read to you. It's what I read Wednesday night. I will rejoice in my salvation. That ought to evoke emotions. In what am I rejoicing about? I'm rejoicing about I was this wicked, unsaved sinner apart from Christ. And God in his goodness to me saved me out of the miry muck of my life. I don't want to ever forget that. I don't want to ever forget what I did pre-Christ. Because it will allow me to be reminded of the holiness of God and what God did for me. May we weep bitterly over our sin. Does our outward expression show our internal desires and remorse for all that God has done for us? And now the last one is this. Command 9 and 10. He says this. Now there's this need for holiness in our salvation. He says it this way in verse 10. Excuse me, verse 9b. He says this. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The first one is this. The way you know you need holiness is through perspective. The things before Christ that made us laugh ought to make us cry. The filthy jokes that we heard and said, they ought to bring us to our knees out of confession. And we ought to weep. We ought to weep when we hear it. We ought not to laugh at those ungodly things. That is what James is saying. Let your laughter to the world be turned in mourning for the world. He says, let your joy be turned to gloom. Do we have a perspective about holiness? I said it last week, I'll say it again. What makes you laugh? What brings you joy? Is it the things of the world or the things of God? Is it it's the things of the world? We need holiness. What is our perspective? It goes back to, do you see God for who he is? I promise this, God is not laughing at most of the stuff his followers are laughing at. But he's our perspective. He's our lens that we ought to look through, even laughter. And the last one is this. The need for holiness ought to bring us to a place to humble ourselves. Humility it ought to be the posture of every believer. Because of a place of humility will lead back to the first place of submission. So are you, am I, as this church, in a posture of understanding our neediness for holiness, and therefore we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, because this is what it says in the text. Here's the promise. If I humble myself before the Lord, He will exalt me. I don't need to exalt myself anymore. But when I humble myself, God will do for me what I always desired to do, and that's to be exalted. But it will no longer be about me, it will be about Him. My exaltation won't be about self, it'll be about God. One writer says this in closing. He says this about all these things, in particular, being humble. 
He says, as a tree must strike down its roots downward, that it may grow upward. So everyone who has not his soul fixed deep into humility exalts himself to his own ruin. Let me say, paraphrase, the same way a tree's roots must go downward so that it can grow upwards. A, a Christian man, a Christian woman ought to go downward so that he also can go upward. If you're trying to go upward, you will be led to ruin. A downward posture is an upward posture. So to you, to me, in closing this morning is this. Do you know your great need for God? I'm now going to ask the question that I started the morning with. What do you think about God this morning? Do you see your need for God? Do you see your need for forgiveness from God? Do you pour out your emotions and your need for emotions to God? And do you know your need for holiness from God? Let us pray.